Hey, welcome back. We're into it now. The heart of the law, our overview of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to start today on our overview of Leviticus, which is a one-month intensive that taught Israel how to relate to a holy God. Now, why does that even matter? We'll take a look back at Exodus. After God brought Israel out of Egypt into Mount Sinai, he gave them the covenant, and they came into a relationship with him. And once they had done that, God gave them the plans to build the tabernacle. That actually takes most of the second half of Leviticus, where we're told that Israel made the parts of the temple, put everything together, and once the tabernacle was completed, the glory of God came down and filled the tabernacle. And everyone was amazed. It was great. Except for one thing. Because Israel was supposed to be able to have their priests give sacrifices in the temple, but while God's glory was in there, no one could go in. No one could serve in the temple the way they were supposed to, not even Moses. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that God was inside the temple, and he was speaking to Moses from the temple, Moses being outside. And yet something happens over the course of Leviticus, so that when we reach the next book, Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1, God is speaking to Moses, not from the temple, but in the temple. So we need Leviticus in our Bibles, because Leviticus shows how a sinful, broken people can relate to a perfect and holy God. This is my little thing I made for Leviticus to help you hopefully grasp a little bit more of the progression. You can follow the arrows as you're following the chapters from beginning to end. But at the same time, you can hopefully see that the end kind of matches each other. There are two different kinds of regular rituals they do. And as you move from the outside in, you are approaching the center of the book, which is the, the climax, the main point of Leviticus that's we see in the Day of Atonement, can show how Israel is made to relate to God. We're going to start right here today with the offerings that God has given to Israel. Specifically, there are five ways that Israel was called to worship God and respond to Him. Two of these ways are our responses we can have to God's provision. Two of them are our responses to our sin. And one of them is our response to God's holiness. Before we get into it, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, that it is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we ask that you would help us to understand it well, so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's start off taking a look at the two responses to God's provision, starting with a grain offering. Israel was a largely agrarian economy, and they provided food for themselves from the land, whether through farming or through the animals that they raised, sheep, goat, bulls, and, and oxen, all of those different kinds of animals. Well, at least 11 tribes did. The tribe of Levi, they lived in a couple cities, and they cared for the temple, they taught people the word of God, but they didn't have land to farm. So instead, God said to them, the rest of Israel, I have given you land, and when you have this crops that come in, 
You are to take your grain, whether it is just grain or you grind it into flour, you bake it into bread. You're to scent it with this frankincense, make it an aromatic wonderful smelling kind of bread and you bring it to the tabernacle you give it to the priest who will take a portion of it and place it on the altar to show this is a sacrifice to God but the rest of it will be given to those people who are serving you on God's behalf and serving God on your behalf in the same way we do this in the church too the book of Philippians was written by Paul, yes, to encourage a church that was going through tribulation and and difficult times. But at the same time, it was also a letter to thank the church at Philippi for the support that they had given to Paul. And in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, I have received everything and I have plenty. I have all I need because I received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And so we too can respond to God's provision by helping to take from what God has given us and provide for the work that he is doing around the world and within our local church. The second way that we respond to God's provision is through the peace offering. In Israel, you don't just receive regular sustenance through the the lands that you are caring for. Sometimes something else happens, something that is unusual or unexpected, something worth really celebrating. And God says, yes, absolutely, celebrate and bring me to the center of that celebration. So when something good happens, this worshiper would come with friends and family to the tabernacle and they would bring an animal and that animal would be sacrificed. Its blood and its fat would go onto the altar, but the rest of it would be cooked and turned into a wonderful feast to which this worshiper would invite his family, his friends and the priests. And as everyone is sitting around and enjoying this food, The worshiper would stand up and they would tell the story of why they have brought this offering, how they have been provided for by God. And everyone who hears this would praise God because of what they heard. Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16 say, Through him let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. And don't neglect to do good and share what you have, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. We, too, can respond to God's provision by celebrating it publicly, praising God and telling others what he has done for us. So those are two responses to God's provision. But we are also given two responses to our sin, because it's a fact that God is holy, he is perfect, and we are are broken. We still sin. So how do we come to God when we have sinned? The first way is through the sin offering, because sometimes we're sinning not against another person, but we're sinning against God himself. And all sin deserves punishment, separation from God, and the ultimate form of that is death. So what happens when an Israelite would sin? They would come to the tabernacle with a sacrifice, a perfect animal without spot or blemish or defect. And they would place their hand on its head and publicly confess their sin they had done. And that animal would die, and its blood would cover over their sin. Now for us, 
we don't make sacrifices today because we already know the perfect sacrifice has already taken place. Jesus himself died for us. And so instead, when we sin, we are given the wonderful words of 1 John 1 9, which says, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. When you sin, when you fail, you don't need to clean up your act. You don't need to stop your sin and do enough good to make up for it before you come to God. Yes, yes, God does want you to stop sinning. Yes, he wants you to do good. Absolutely. But you don't do that before you come back to God. Instead, we are given a three-step process. Number one, confess your sin. Tell God about it. Sometimes tell other people about it. And admit that it's wrong. Admit that it has caused brokenness and you may have to face a consequence for it. But, two, trust in Jesus' forgiveness. That his blood, his death, paid for that too. And he knew about that when you first trusted in him. And he gave you his life. So that, three, because you have confessed and because you have trusted, you can now continue to walk in fellowship with him. You turn away from that sin and you do good, but not to get back into fellowship with God, but rather because you are in fellowship with God already. That is the hope that we have because of Jesus. But sometimes our sins aren't only against God. Sometimes they're against other people. And so when an Israelite would steal or embezzle or cheat or do something to wrong another person, what they would have to do is they would bring the person they have wronged to the tabernacle. They would confess their sin and what they had done wrong and then either return or reimburse the person for what had been taken plus 20% of the value. If I had stolen from my neighbor... $100, I would bring them to the tabernacle, say, I stole it $100 and give them 120 And then, on top of that, I would give the guilt offering, which is very much like a sin offering, because our sins against one another are also sins against God. James 5.16 tells us, confess your sins to one another. And in our church, when we sin against one another, we are given steps to do, both when we are the sinner and when we are the one who has been wronged. If we are the one who has done the wrong, we are called to respond to our sin by confessing our sin to another person and seeking to make it right. Even if they don't accept it, even if they won't accept what you have done wrong and you can't return to a right relationship, that does not bring you off the hook for confessing it and trying to make it right. And then, because it's against God, we confess and we trust in Jesus' blood and we continue walking in fellowship. But if we are the one that has been wronged, we are called to respond to other sins in two ways, with discipline and with love and mercy and grace. Those three ideas kind of put together. But we need to find the right balance. 
You don't show all love, mercy, and grace and completely ignore discipline and the fact that it's wrong. But on the other hand, you don't just say it's wrong and you need to fix that and show no love, mercy, and grace. Instead, I want you to think of these guidelines. When someone has sinned against you, give them as much discipline as you must but as much mercy, love, and grace as you can. If you are guided by those guidelines, you're doing great. And then we come to the fifth and the final offering, which is not a response to God's provision. It's not a response to our sin. It's a response to the call of Leviticus to be holy because I am holy. The burnt offering communicates complete dependence on and surrender to God. It is a sacrifice that, unlike all the other sacrifices, is entirely given to God on the altar. The entire animal is burned up on it. Just as we who are making the sacrifice would have been saying that we are dedicating ourselves, offering ourselves to God. And this is true for us as believers too. Romans 6.13 says, Give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So, use your body as an instrument to do what's right for God's glory. We are called to respond to what God has done in us by dedicating ourselves to be used by Him for His glory. And this is not just a call for pastors or for missionaries. This is a call for every single one of us. If you have trusted in Jesus and you have new life in him, you are called to dedicate yourself to living for his glory. Now for a quick note on what these sacrifices don't teach us. These sacrifices absolutely do not teach you and me how to be saved. I mean, they didn't teach Israel how to be saved. By the time Leviticus came around, Israel had already been saved out of Egypt. They had already entered into that covenant relationship with God. They had already built the tabernacle. These sacrifices weren't teaching them how to start a relationship with God. They were teaching them how to enjoy that relationship, to have more fellowship, and to avoid God's discipline. And these sacrifices don't teach us how to be saved. We trust in Jesus to be saved. He is the one who is the perfect sacrifice, who came to earth, gave himself completely to God, sacrificing himself for our sins so that he could freely give life to everyone who trusted in him being enough for God on our behalf. Every other religion will call you to do enough for God, to be enough for God, to give enough for God to accept you. Only Jesus tells you that he already is enough, and you need to trust in his enoughness. Is that a word? Still, you catch the idea. And when you do, you are part of God's family. I want you to think about that idea as a family. Think of your relationship with your parents or or your kids. If you obey your parents, your relationship with them improves, right? You enjoy being with them more. But you're not more their child. And when you discipline, your relationship gets more strained. You know, it feels like it's breaking and, and you may even come under discipline. 
But discipline does not mean that you are not their child anymore. These sacrifices are not given for us to apply to our lives so that we can become, stay, or prove that we are saved. These teach us instead how to enjoy our relationship with God, to get more fellowship with Him, and to be disciplined by Him less. So let's do that. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the family of God. And if you haven't, you don't need to earn His love. You don't need to do these sacrifices and, and give or, or celebrate to declare or do any of that stuff to gain the life of God. All you need to do is trust in God having done it for you and giving it to you freely. And once you're part of that family, that is the point that you learn to show worship in response to God. To respond to God's provision, to respond to your sin, and to respond to God's call on your life in the way that He wants us to. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, if you're not a part of God's family, I need you to know these sacrifices are not your lesson to become saved. They don't tell you how to be enough for God. Jesus already was. His death paid for your sin and your death. His life defeated death on your behalf so that you can have life, not because of you, not because of going to church or sacrificing or giving, but because of Him. Trust in Him apart from any of these works. But then once you have trusted in Jesus, you are a part of God's family. You are a part of the body of Christ. And it's as our faith and our works come together, not that we are more assured that we are saved, but rather we come to enjoy our relationship with God more through the way that we respond to God's provision, the way we respond to our sin, and the way we respond to God's call on our lives. So let's seek to do that, huh? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that these guidelines that you gave for Israel through the book of Leviticus guide us too. Help us to live in total dependence on you, to thank you for and share what you provide for us, to confess our sins against others and against you, and to forgive others who have sinned against us. And as we do so, Jesus, help us to grow deeper in our trust, our love, and obedience of you, and to display your goodness to those around us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I'll see you next week.